Okay, good evening everybody. Um, a very warm welcome to the second of these conversations to welcome the Women's Library to the NSC. Um, this evening we're very happy to have two speakers with us who are going to discuss the question of is there a sexual history? And I want first of all to introduce these speakers and they will then um, take forward the discussion. So first of all I want to introduce Claire Hemmings who is a professor here at the LSE in the Gender Institute, a professor of feminist theory. Um, she's been at the LSE for 15 years and has worked primarily on issues about gender and sexuality, about how stories about gender and sexuality become popular, how they're institutionalized, and how they're used across time and space. She's the author of Bisexual Spaces and Why Stories Matter, and is currently working on a life of Emma Goldman and the effective life of gender. For 10 years, she was a member of the Feminist Review Collective and is one of the co-editors of the Gender Institute publication series, Thinking Gender in Transnational Times. The second person that I want to introduce to you this evening is Jeff Weeks, who is an Emeritus Professor of Sociology and for a long time taught at London South Bank University where he was previously head of research. He's been writing since the 1970s. His first book was coming out. And secondly, Sex, Politics and Society, which is now in its third edition. His two most recent publications are The World We Have Lost and The Languages of Sexuality. The World We Have Won. Well, We Have Won. I'm sorry. <laughs> the World We Have Won. <laughs> and um, the languages of sexuality. He's working on sexual history at the moment. I also want to say something about both our speakers, um, obviously united by their research interests, but also united by the contribution that both of them have made to different institutions, to Claire at the Gender Institute and to Jeffrey, and in Jeffrey's case, London South Bank University in developing institutions and institutional spaces where people can talk to each other and indeed have conversations. So I think it's particularly fitting that both of them are here this evening to carry on a conversation. Geoffrey is going to speak first, and so I'd like you all to welcome Jeff Weeks. Oh, thanks very much, and thanks, Mary. Um, the way we're going to do this is I'm going to speak uh, for about 10 minutes. Claire will speak for about 10 minutes, and then we'll engage in a dialogue and open it up to, to you. Um, this is as much yours as our event, we hope. Um, I thought I'd start uh, by talking about the birth or at least rebirth of sexual history in the 1970s because it, it shaped uh, many of the tram lines which we followed or have critiqued ever since, so set the, the framework for sexual history. It was in fact the sexual history that was born in the 1970s was a new sexual history which uh, 
was based really on a critique of the forms of sexual history that had developed over the previous hundred years, um, very much shaped by sexology, by the idea that we can understand sexuality as a science um, or use scientific understandings of, of sexuality. Um, there wasn't a hugely productive amount of uh, historical work during that period, but what is characteristic of it is, is a naturalistic assumption. It didn't question the nature of sexuality itself. What was new about the new sexual history from the 1970s is that its fundamental point was to question sexuality, question the idea of sexuality, and particularly of the categories that were taken for granted as natural. Um, and there were various routes for this, and I'll just mention briefly um, uh, three key routes, as I see it, of this uh, new sexual history. Um, the first and most obvious was the shift in orientation that came from the emergence of feminism and uh, the gay movement in the 1970s, because in a sense that displaced the scientific paradigms and said the important thing um, was actually... Um, a history that came from below. It became much more complex than that over, over time, but the contribution of early feminist uh, historians and of uh, lesbian and gay historians was, I believe, fundamental. It's a very interesting fact, for instance, that uh, when the Journal of the History of Sexuality was founded in the, uh, the 90s, um, um, over half of its articles were on homosexuality. So homosexuality was a key driver um, of uh, many of these early histories from women as well as uh, men um, and so that was once a crucial part of the, the new sexual history. The second was a critique based on a critique at least of, um, of the scientific pretensions of sexology that came largely from sociology at that time um, people like uh, the American social psychologist Gagnon and Simon or Mary McIntosh um, the sociologist Mary McIntosh in this country um, and for me as a pioneering uh, gay historian, sexual historian in the 70s, the insights of sociology were crucial because traditional history wasn't in the least interested in sexuality um, and uh, certainly um, I can remember um, in the words of Ken Plummer feeling morally suspect um, for doing sexual history and in fact uh, in quite a long career now I never got a post in a history department um, I ended up as a professor of sociology because history as as a discipline was not in the least interested in, in sexuality. So that input from, um, from sociology and subsequently from literature, from philosophy and so on was, was critical to the rethinking of sexual history. And the third strand, of, of course, um, perhaps was more philosophical um, and came from the impact of the work of Michel Foucault and all that followed from that. I'm not going to go into detail on that, but the, the crucial thing was... Um, from my point of view, a viable sexual history was beginning before Foucault um, first published the first volume of The History of Sexuality um, and had different roots. And it's quite easy in looking backwards to assume that the foundation of uh, the new sexual history was Foucault. It wasn't at all, although the contribution 
whether willingly or unwillingly, because he was interpreted and misinterpreted, nevertheless is pretty crucial in the way in which sexual history um, developed over the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, I think there have been several crucial strands in the sexual history that has developed. Um, The first I've mentioned, which was um, rooted in the lesbian and gay movement in the 70s, uh, which in the first place Um, was a recovery of a lost history, as it was seen. Um, um, It's very interesting that two early books on both feminism and uh, lesbian and gay history, both called Hidden from History. So the the initial sense was this was an act of recovery. Um, But the early phases of lesbian and gay history were very much concerned with identity, the emergence of identities, the power of identities, the progression of identities, and, crucially, the critique of identities. And in the second phase of, uh, um, of... what by the 90s has been called queer history, was actually a critique of identities in, in general. And that's been a very important uh, strand in, in sexual history. The second major um, thrust, of course, came from feminism um, and the, again, in the first place, an act of recovery, um, exploring women's hidden sexual history, but then becoming much more complex as notions of power, male domination, patriarchy were worked through in the development of sexual history and for a while that whole field was riven by um, by um, in a sense ideological conflicts within feminism, between radical feminism and, and liberal and socialist feminism, which was not only played out in the political field but also in the field of uh, historical work. But again there's been an important evolution in that um, and particularly the development of uh, more intersectional studies uh, from the 1990s looking at the complex relationship of uh, female sexuality to class to race, to um, to geography, um, to regions, and the whole uh, age, and the whole range of different factors that come to play on sexuality. A third tendency, I think, which has been very important, um, is, in a sense, a mainstreaming of of sexual history. Um, Now, it's, it's... a good sign of that is the way in which sexual history has become an important subject in universities, particularly in the States um, and to a lesser extent here. And a very interesting signal of that was the fact that uh, our most prestigious historical body, the Institute of Historical Research, um, it took until January this year to hold its first seminar series on the history of sexuality. But that first session, which I went to, was absolutely jam-packed. Over 80 people came to a seminar in a room which was designed for about 40 people. So it's obviously at a very important grassroots level um, an important and um, enthusing um, subject matter. Um, And I think there's a very important way in which uh, um, a grassroots sexual history um, fed by both feminism and uh, lesbian LGBT politics more widely um, is still very important. The popularity of LGBT history months, for instance, um, um, 
across America and Britain and parts of Europe is a sign of that. And this year's LGBT History Month in London is packed full of historical events involving people who not by any means, um, any definition of the word, professional historians, but ordinary members of the various communities. So that's very important. Um, but the mainstreaming of history it also means, of course, the way in which history has entered the wider discourse. Uh, sexuality has entered the wider discourse of, uh, of, of history. And that is still, t- to some degree, uh, limited. Laura Doan, in a recent book looking at uh, queer history, um, comments how limited... Uh, mainstream history has taken on board sexual history um, to this day. Um, But nevertheless, it's a very important tendency. Uh, A fourth tendency I I just want to mention briefly is the way in which sexual history has become globalised. Um, increasingly globalised recognition that it's very difficult to understand any sexual regime within the confines of one tradition, one community, one nation Um, and you know phenomena like the which used to be called the white, the white slave trade, the, the trade in, in women, in children, and so on, is an international phenomenon. It's been recognized as such since the late 19th century, but it is still crucial today. The way in which uh, um, LGBT struggles have become global um, is one aspect of that. But another aspect is a w- increasing recognition of the ways in which Western imperialism um, Impose sexual regimes on the rest of the world. So we could see um, what's happening in Africa today as in part a reaction to what's seen as Western influences again in, in the name of, uh, of uh, African identity, but ironically doing it within the framework that was precise, precisely laid down um, by uh, British imperialism. And another little fact which is very important is that over half uh, the, the countries in the world um, which are um, which still criminalise homosexuality are members of the British Commonwealth, or members of the Commonwealth, I should say, formerly British Commonwealth. In other words, were imposed by British imperialism um, over the past hundred years. And it's another irony of sexual history that while Britain, like the rest of Europe, has liberalised, the um, former colonies are still living through the um, various impositions of sexual definitions, which you could trace back to the late 19th century. Um, I just wanted to highlight, to to close, um, some of the issues which I think are becoming increasingly important in sexuality, um, uh, historical um, research on sexuality. Um, And um, I'll give headlines for lack of time, but we can discuss these as you want. Um, The first I'd want to highlight is the importance increasingly um, in historical work of exploring subjectivity um, and affect, emotions affect. Um, The earlier sexual history tended to emphasize legal frameworks, forms of oppression, um, 
forms of resistance and so on. But I think there's, although it was latent in our early work, there's an increasing emphasis on the power of emotions, the power of affect in, in shaping history. A second important element um, is the significance of generations in exploring sexuality. Ken Plummer wrote um, um, a very interesting article a few years back called Generational Sexualities, in which he explored the, uh, uh, the impact of different generations in, in thinking sexuality, rethinking sexuality, and of course as a result uh, rethinking sexual history. Um, and you could see the effects of that. I mentioned the sexological generation of the late 19th, early 20th century. Then there was the, the, the social movements uh, of the 70s shape, reshaping history. Um, and you could see a queer generation from the 1990s reshaping it. So history is being constantly reshaped, reflecting not only a succession of different generations, but the, the interest the concerns, the political problems uh, and social and cultural problems of different generations reinterpreting um, sexual history. And linked to that is the recognition of different time frames, different temporalities in, in exploring uh, sexuality. Um, um, the, the queer theorist Jack Halberstam, for instance, has talked about queer time or queer temporalities and the, the way in which um, queer identified people have a different sense of time um, and of history, therefore, um, from um, uh, more orthodox members of, of the culture. But more than that, I think there's a recognition that by emphasizing temporalities, we recognize that at any particular period, there are different generations of sexuality um, coexisting. And in order to understand our own time and the way in which our own time is, in a sense, emerged, you have to understand the different uh, um, generational frameworks. Um, so time is a crucial aspect, which you'd expect with history, but it's something that, in a sense, is underplayed. Because one of the profound impacts, I think, of, uh, of sexual history is a problematization of the taken for granted. Um, um, the categories we've used, and it's all too easy to use, like homosexuality, um, which, as I said earlier, has been a crucial element in pushing the new sexual history, is very important because, you know, it's a concept, an idea which is invented within definable time. It's changed its meanings over time. And if we simply look at the past um, as an attempt to understand the history of homosexuality, as if it was a natural phenomenon that's unchanging through time, you miss all the significance of what has actually shifted. And one of the interesting things of recent uh, sexual history is the way in which it's focused on different aspects um, of, uh, of these categories, both challenging and problematizing categories, but also um, exploring um, the framework and histories of, for instance, the perversions of bisexuality, of trans history, um, for instance. So... Um, Sexual history is evolving, and it's evolving in accord with our shifting preoccupations um, with, with the sexual and the body and with gender. And that, of course, is what one 
should expect as a historian, but it's something that's all too easily um, taken for granted when we don't question, when we don't problematize the frameworks in which we try to understand history. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for kicking us off so, so brilliantly. And, and the, the question that we were asked to reflect on, um, is there a sexual history, uh, in, in many ways, of course, very modestly, um, what you haven't said is that, yes, if the answer is yes, there is, then that's in large part, of course, down to you. <laughs> Um, and that's not insignificant as a point, actually, which is that very often um, uh, histories um, and marginal practices within and outside academia and the bringing to light of, of difference does rely, actually, very strongly on the um, commitment and dedication of a few people. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, and it's an, uh, an opportunity for me to be able to say that to you um, publicly for doing that hard work which as you say now has begun to be mainstreamed in ways that make the kinds of risks that you were taking um, in being what was the phrase that, that you used morally suspect um, uh, that, 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 that risk I mean it's, a, it's an amusing phrase but the, the, the risk that uh, you took in, in doing that is not to be underestimated um, so I, I want all to flag that um, I realised actually as I was preparing the thoughts that I was going to share with you um, that um, it's partly because of that that I realised that I'm um, unreasonably anxious about what I have to say <laughs> uh, and whether or not you will like it. <laughs> um, so there are some overlaps which I'm really delighted by uh, and, and uh, some things that I think might take us in, in uh, slightly different directions. Um, so... Um, uh, so my first point is that, of course, there is a sexual history uh, in response to that question, but it's one uh, that raises a range of issues about sources, about interpretations, and about the relationality of past and present, including the people or things that overflow space and time and the spaces like this uh, where we discuss them. And I want to focus here for 15 or so minutes on three key tensions that I think are, uh, one might think productively about in relationship to the telling of sexual history. Um, none of which I think are easily resolved, all of which raise questions uh, of desire, not only as an object of inquiry uh, in terms of sexual history, but as a dynamic that motivates and structures historical inquiry. So you've given a, a very clear sense of the, of the desire for a different kind of history that motivates the challenging of scientific or legal accounts, for example. And that desire is often slightly underplayed, I think, in, in, in how we account for that. Um, and it's that dynamic that I'm particularly interested in, in, in thinking about, about what that means for people interested in telling sexual history. Uh, so uh, what I have to say starts quite generally and then uh, as I get more confused uh, it becomes more focused on my recent work on Emma Goldman as an attempt for her to rescue me rather than me to rescue her which would be a more usual uh, uh, historical dynamic. Can I just check you can hear me okay? You can hear me okay. Yeah. 
The first tension, uh, and this relates quite closely, I think, to what uh, Jeff was saying, um, could be said to have inaugurated historical work within interdisciplinary politicised fields, such as feminist studies, sexuality studies, and critical race or post-colonial studies. Uh, And that's the one between dominant characterisations of history and of subjects within it that stereotype or um, demonise deviance and the desire to set the record straight in some way by identifying alternatives to those characterizations. And that's, if you like, the kind of one of the dominant tensions that inaugurates sexual history. Uh, and I would see that as a tension rather than as, an, as, a, as a, uh, either a failed or a successful uh, attempt to, to do that. And this is incredibly important work with a radical history, Uh, and it involves identifying different voices and traces from the past as part of writing a counter-history that contemporary political subjects can cherish. The counter-history of sexuality speaks of survival, for example, rather than only of deviance, of community rather than isolation, Um, of pride rather than shame, we might say. It challenges existing sources as well as narratives, focusing more on diaries, letters, household accounts, literary remnants, and rereads more conventional sources with a different eye. So it's not just a question of what you're, it's not just a question of how you go back, but of what you consider when you do. All of this has been well documented, uh, and as has also been well documented, such approaches suffer from the problems that any political or intellectual desire for reclamation also suffers from. Over-investing, for example, in the difference between dominant and resistant sources and lives, seeing the past in the image of the present, and so forth, um, or as the long march of progress from a time where we uh, did not see ourselves recognised to a time where perhaps we do. But as a drive to understand the past through more than its dominant traces and sources, this tension remains a productive one for me, as you'll see and as I come back to. And, I, and uh, whatever, else I, whatever else I say, I, I, I've characterised it as a tension because I, th- I think that there is a tendency among the kinds of queer histories that, that you, you flag to kind of want to claim uh, a radical alterity uh, in ways that I think don't necessarily contextualise the emergence of, of, of the different histories that we tell and, and, and cherish. So the second tension still concerns the gaps that I think characterise any history of marginality or deviance, but in particular those that are structured by public-private divides that that determine what is and is not visible. In terms of a history of sexuality, often understood as secret, as denied or as a private concern, even if we know better since Foucault and others that this is a technique rather than a truth as such, There are particular archival consequences to the fact that certain practices have been or remain uh, illegal, miscegenation, same-sex practice, or homosexual identities, uh, and so on, sex work, all come with strict moral sanctions, sex outside of marriage, sexual violence, and so on. Uh, Much has been, um, much of course has been destroyed in sexual history, and not only by outside sources, as people struggle to survive and protect themselves from harm or to retain their privileges. 
If we think this is only about the past, consider the efforts contemporary politicians make to ensure that sex outside of marriage remains hidden and the public furore that ensues if revealed. So, in part, the, the idea that this is something only about the past is, is also needs uh, challenging. In considering the archive, the question shifts somewhat then away from simply a detective effort to fill missing gaps, a turn to the private or the misplaced, though of course this continues and is important, and towards a question of how to read the gaps themselves that I think is a really important feature of sexual history. This is important so we don't try to write over the power relations that mark the sexual archive as if sexual meaning and practice were a question of equivalence rather than hierarchy, as if meaning is simply there to be found empirically despite the fact of all sexual histories as violently contested both then and now. Uh, so this to me is an important shift in, in, in terms of thinking about gaps as not necessarily something that is simply available to be filled, but it, as itself constitutive of, of sexual history. To give an example from my recent work on Emma Goldman, who is an anarchist activist and theorist who lived 1869 to 1940, the Goldman archive is filled with sexual detail, but mostly in the forms of uh, extremely explicit uh, letters to opposite sex lovers, or abstract support for homosexuality in terms of support for Oscar Wilde, say, or lectures on the importance of sexual freedom. Um, the discovery of the letters of hers to her lover by Candace Falk in the 1980s led uh, a range of feminist historians to accuse Goldman, because of the explicitness of the letters, of um, profound heterosexism as if other attachments could only be evidenced by equal and opposing passion and the direct survival of those traces. So the kind of glut of her opposite-sex desire comes to be something that's attached to her as heterosexism, as if we expected to find an equal and equivalent set of alternative evidence. As one might expect, the Goldman archive is filled with gaps. The front pages of her lectures on homosexuality exist, but we have none of the lectures. With references uh, throughout her archive to her distaste for lesbians and her mockery of homosexual effeminacy, uh, in particular with her correspondence with uh, Margaret Sanger, the birth control activist, and, and with her lover um, Bergman, and with even fainter traces of her own desires in an un unpublished um, outline for her autobiography, which in which, interestingly, she uh, raises the spectre of her. Um, the explicitness of her desire for Sanger, uh, while at the same time their letters include uh, explicit uh, disavowal of, any, of the relevance of, of lesbian sex, uh, which may, may, may make one um, wonder about um, what they were really talking about. <laughs> uh, and with even fainter traces of her own desires, uh, in an, uh, so in this autobiographical account, and in the 60 or more letters to her from Alma Desperi, who was a Labour activist, sex worker, uh, lover, and sometimes stalker of Goldman, to which we have no replies. 
You may be familiar with Sperry's letters if you're engaged at all in the history of uh, homosexuality because a range of them have been published in various volumes. What's interesting about the 60 letters is that over 40 of them are primarily uh, representations of her increasing obsession with Goldman, but the relative number of them that are published that include any reference to her um, violence or stalking is much smaller, so they, they, they largely reference her desire for Goldman and, and her expression of that in very explicit detail um, rather than her um, the devolution of this relationship as expressed by her increasing desperation. Um, so here we have the, these kind of odd traces in which we as, as readers of the archive try to fill those gaps but are confronted with the ways in which the archive resists our attempts at the same time to fill them. We could hunt for the letters, of course, <coughs> in, in true, but that tends to mostly happen in literary representations of academics rather than what academics actually do. Um, we could hunt for these letters, and I won't pretend that I wouldn't be delighted to find them, uh, but the sexual history uh, that we inherit, I want to say, is one in which her letters were always likely to have been lost. And that, that is important in terms of an ethics of how we consider that archive. <coughs> Um, because without that, somehow we don't get the texture or the affect of what it means to inhabit a sexual present, even while we're considering the past. I think this raises a range of ethical and political questions about how to do sexual history that are about learning, as Blanche Fies and Cook puts it in the 80s, to listen carefully to those tensions now and then. Too often in a rights-based progress narrative of sexual history in which we develop from not having rights to having rights, and as you suggested, that is also increasingly a global uh, um, teleology and organising feature. Too often in a rights-based progress narrative of sexual history, the present is identified as an improvement on the past, precisely because we can now see sexual marginality just as it morphs into the mainstream. We tend to tell the history of increased sexual rights and filling of gaps, past and present, or perhaps we point to some brave forebears who made our fuller sexual present available. We probably also point to areas and places where those rights have yet to be secured. But I'm concerned here with the tension between that very powerful fantasy of sexual emergence and what I think is in fact a considerable instability of sexual meaning, both then and now, and with how we begin to articulate that complexity. One might in fact wonder whether increased recognition makes engaging that complexity harder and harder rather than easier and easier. Over time, I've become more interested in what gets lost if we tell a sexual history that reflects our fantasy that we know our sexuality in the present. For me, that reduces sexual history to identity and identity to a few privileged subjects with access to rights. No wonder we have a context in which gay rights can be claimed as part of modernity while sex education, sex worker rights or experience of sexual violence are consistently denied in those very places where sexual rights are claimed as part of that modernity. And that this contradiction is itself not seen as in any way a challenge to that predominant teleology. The third tension I want to flag, and, and then I'll, I'll close um, and uh, uh, engage 
with Jeffrey um, is this evening is one in which that unstable desire uh, between the past and the present and its people never quite lets us off the hook. That tension between knowledge and interpretation, fact and fiction, if you like. I've come to this because despite what I've just said, I can't help but come back again and again to the letters Goldman might have written back to Sperry, to her possible responses to desire, to violence and to obsession, as well as to our failures to find those letters. That failure to find them, but to still imagine them there. Is, if you like, is a constitutive tension that inaugurates um, academic and political practice. Is in part, that failure to find them but still to imagine them there, is in part because of our preference for a sexual history in which Goldman herself was not ambivalent, did not fuse passion and disgust in her relation to other women, or did not fear exposure and destroy them, and then feel perhaps re- relief or guilt. To accept, it asks us to imagine them destroyed by her, is to accept that this remarkable heroic woman who went to prison, endured poverty, imprisonment and exile, may not have been able to risk this. So I experiment with writing her letters back, of course, not prepared to let Sperry's letters stand as this particular sexual history, not only uh, because only the visible and only the pieces we want uh, to remain get the airing, fully aware of the absurdity of my proposition that I could write them. A writing of Goldman's letters as a kind of memory work that focuses on my own yearning for a stronger trace of the passion and anger at Sperry's violence and at the reciprocal nature of desire that make a strange precursor to the non-identitarian sexual uncertainties that I think characterise most times and places and that I know I won't find except imaginatively, at least only in part that prompts an ethics of sexual history that seeks to transform the critical relation with Goldman from one that cleans her up or rejects her for her contemporary ills, her heterosexism, to one that assumes she had a contradictory sexual voice, even though, or perhaps precisely because, it can't be verified. In a sense, this is a larger methodological question. How do we start from yearning for something whose evidence trace can never be reconstructed? as critics wanting to disrupt resonances across time. Rather than a choice between fantastic reclamation or flat contextualisation, the twin epistemologies that continue to govern sexual history, in my view, what possibilities might starting from yearning for something that cannot be verified open up? That's it, thank you. Yeah. Um, Well, thanks very much, Claire. That was fascinating and uh, did indeed resonate with uh, many of my own thoughts. But I I wanted to start, in a sense, where you ended, um, which, to put it crudely, is about the politics of sexual history um, and, in particular, why we do it. Um, Because 
uh, you, in a sense, critiqued identitarian history, and I could see why you do it. Identitarian history traps us within the categories which we know were invented, and that's an eternal dilemma um, when we know that the concept of heterosexuality and homosexuality have a particular history. To write histories of homosexuality and heterosexuality as if they were unproblematic traps us in a perpetual circle and actually um, um, obliterates the fact that desire is complex, that um, these labels are transitory, we use them for particular purposes and reject them at other times. But I think it's also very important to recognise why people developed an identity history in the 70s. Um, And that was essentially a political move. Even though many of us involved in writing what have subsequently been called identity histories, like my first book coming out, was in a sense a history of the emergence of a gay identity, gay and lesbian identities in in Britain. while I was doing it, the work of doing it problematized these categories. Um, so I've been both criticized for doing an identity history and for disintegrating the very concept of, uh, of identity. And that, that's the perpetual ident- uh, dilemma we have. But when Mary said my book was called The World We Have Lost. I, I, uh, I do apologize. No, no, it's, I'm it's, very it's, sorry. Uh, uh, it's important that I make this point. Uh, that was an easy error. There is, in fact, a book called The World We Have Lost by Peter Laslett, which is the title I played with in mind. But the importance of me calling it The World We Have Won is that despite all the critiques of that history, which Claire summarized, of a particular progressivist history, I wanted to do two things in that book, which was both to problematize an easy narrative of simple progress and to put back into place the forms of agency which produced it against all the odds. Mm. But I also wanted to make the point that there have been real achievements, Mm. that in in 2007, when I finished it, um, um, unmarried mothers were not being pushed into mother and baby homes. Um, women were not um, forced into backstreet abortions. <coughs> Gay men were not imprisoned um, for their desires and consensual activities, and so on and so on. There were major gains. So how do you measure those gains against the fact that there's continuing exploitation, that new forms of domination and subordination um, are ever popping up? Um, And you can never say that each battle is won because at the moment when uh, in the West many of the ambitions of the 1970s generation have been won in terms of legal equality, and so on. Um, In other parts of the world, we know the reaction against Western norms and Western um, uh, evils, as they're seen, including in uh, Russia, um, are gaining force. So how do you balance these things? Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult to balance these things. And 
what I'm suggesting is you simultaneously have to hold together a recognition of the fragility of gains and the, uh, the fact that no gain is forever and that sexuality is very fluid and constantly changes its shape and is in fact redefined all the time um, with the fact that many people are better off today, um, not only in the West, but in other parts of the world, because of forms of agency that developed in the post-war world. Um, I, think, um, I think that's why... It's always difficult when you're speaking in a narrative, isn't it? Because it's easy to see the three tensions that I was um, interested in trying to tease out as, in some senses, their own um, teleology. And that's certainly not what I intended, because I'm actually not sure... um, I'm actually not sure that you could do any uh, sexual history without, in some, on some level, being having some forms of identitarian attachment. I'm actually not sure that the, you know, the queerest queer theorist, it, in any real sense, achieves that, or, or that that should be, in some senses, the test of their queerness. Let's say. And what I'm more interested in doing is, is, is teasing out the ways in which that constitutive tension between. Um, the political, radical, um, uh, but also self-serving desire to challenge um, uh, stereotypes and deviance, to look for, for, for the truth in, in the gaps and to uh, in, engage in a form both of uh, um, reclamation but also of, of um, uh, interesting complexity and, and ambivalence and so on. It's that tension that marks, if you like, that that um, that interest in in looking back and in in looking forward at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem I have with um, part of the difficulties that I have is where somehow, in t- like you're saying, in terms of the characterizations of your work, that let's say people will then critique you for identity or love you for it, depending on their own position, mm-hmm. or critique you for deconstruction or love you for it, depending mm-hmm. on their own position. <laughs> that, in, it, that in a certain sense, the ability to imagine that those things can be, can, can be held in Intention as a way of both imagining the past and, and also a better future is, is less well articulated. I think the point where I would depart from you, though, is, is um, well, in two ways, or, or perhaps anyway, um, have, a, have a different emphasis, is that I think that the, the reason that I think that the focus on identity um, does also need to be problematized at exactly the same time as it, it is acknowledged as constitutive is because the, the difficulty then it, it, it it raises is that it, it it will tend then to focus on what is visible and available because it's a, re- a, 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 a politics of reclamation, mm. and as a result, it will, in a certain sense, prefer that that form of, of bringing into the present or of an attempt to rectify the ills of the past that, that in in lots of ways, um, leaves intact a public-private divide um, that will structure the time, mm. and and in that sense, then I I, I wonder where we where we imagine also we're. Moving from and to, yeah. do, do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I think, in that sense, then 
part of the reason why I think that's important is because um, when we're talking about uh, the present in terms of both losses and gains, so on the one hand you could say, well, look, it's good that there's legislation that means that, you know, you have recourse before the law, or it's great that, you know, uh, people, that, the, uh, that there have been shifts in terms of what people consider is acceptable to do uh, to, to their wife, mm. or, uh, you know, so on. Obviously, you can think about those things in, in, in terms of gains, and you can also look at various losses. Mm. I think my interest historiographically is thinking about um, them as those things as co-constitutive. Mm. So not thinking about gains on the one hand as in a different column to the to the losses. And that, the, in a certain sense, and I think that is one of the, uh, in, in a way you're partly, I think, alluding to this growing body of work on homonationalism, mm. I think, um, which is, um, the, in a sense, I think one of the important things about that body of work is that it does point to the ways in which if you focus on identity and rights, then actually it's not just a different loss that means that that gets taken up or a co-optation that means that is, is, is more easily taken up by the state as a way of, um, let's say, uh, controlling or managing migration um, and demonizing Islam and so on, but that actually that was in fact already uh, written into what it means to um, focus on, on rights and identity. And it's, and it's that, I think, that we're accountable for as, history, as, as, as people doing sexual history, that not just the, 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 the tables of losses and gains. Yeah, but what's also uh, missed in, uh, in many of these critiques of homonationalism, for instance, is its own reverse teleology. Instead of a teleology of progress, it's a teleology of shame sure. um, in many ways. Um, but the idea of a progressive line from the early identity politics of the 1970s to assimilationist politics today completely distorts the complexity of, of that history. Um, and it just underlines the point that all history is political in the end and it's where you start from that accounts for the history. Another example I wanted to give of this was the way in which um, the emergence of uh, um, a particular um, form of history of bisexuality or transgender for instance rewrites the previous teleological history in terms of a new teleology. Yes. I mean, it's arguing your point, for instance. What used to be teased out as evidence of homosexuality is now teased out in a form of history as evidence of bisexuality mm-hmm. and a continuous history. Terrible. Or an evidence of, uh, of uh, a hidden history of transgender. So what in the 70s were regarded as passing women within lesbian histori- historiography is now seen as... Uh, um, a history of trans um, people, um, which was obliterated from history. So we have, I agree with you, we have this tendency to reinterpret uh, the past in particular ways. Um, but they constantly recreate a linear view of history. And it partly depends on you know, what is considered to be the, more imp- the, the, the most important particular position in the present that yeah, determines exactly. the, the rewriting, which is, is partly what should make one suspicious of it yeah. at the same time as also yearning for it, which yeah. is, I suppose, the tension I'm wanting to draw attention to, which is that it's understandable, but it's also... Uh, it's 
it's not enough to then want to rewrite a history to say, oh, this person was originally looked at as, as though they were gay. Now uh, it looks like they might, in fact, uh, be more easily understood as bisexual. Oh, wait, in fact, yeah. it might be trans or whichever uh, particular version thereof. Yeah. Um, what should make us quite suspicious of, of that is, is that, you know, it, it follows a set of contemporary displacements in, yeah. in, in, uh, as if, in fact, one, as if, in fact, the, 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 the meanings of, um, of sexual subjectivities or the meanings of um, uh, the meanings that cluster around any moment in time uh, will be will almost certainly reference more than one possibility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's uh, when you're not involved in those uh, particular struggles immediately, but interested in them and their outcomes, it's very important as far as we can to distance ourselves from the immediate engagement. Um, I mean, you mentioned the homo-nationalist arguments in the States, uh, particularly in the States. They're, they're much less salient um, over here, um, although they're influential. Um, and you can't have feeling that the whole queer element of the queer theory, the queer movement, the queer non-identity, identity um, of, uh, of um, theorists in the state is very much related to a particular conjuncture in the states, which isn't the same conjuncture mm. as we've experienced in Western Europe mm. over the last few years. And yet at the same time as you say that and critique other forms of history, it's very important to recognise the importance of a historical understanding in order to grasp what's happening contemporaneously. I'll just give you an example of that. I mentioned the seminar at the Institute of Historical Research uh, a month ago uh, and one of the speakers was Dan Healy um, who um, is a historian of homosexuality in Russia um, that's a crude way of putting it but that's basically it um, and um, he in a sense junked the paper he was going to give to make a polemical intervention about the importance of our contemporary interest in sexual history to understand what's happening in Russia mm. today. Why Putin for instance um, sanctioned um, in effect a purge on homosexuality and how it's related not to the past so much mm. but actually to the present and the present political conjuncture in Russia and the need that Putin feels to mobilise socially conservative forces and utilise a perceived corruption and decline in the West in order to do that with homosexuality as, as an example, which just underlines for me again the importance of always recognising the politics of the history we do. Now, as sexual history has become mainstream, it has become respectable and it's become depoliticised. There are now hundreds of practitioners in universities uh, across, uh, um, across most of the West anyway uh, where history, sexual history is just one specialism amongst others like urban history, like, like gender history has become, like social history, like cultural history and, and well, so on. Well actually I was going to ask you about that because one of the things I thought was interesting about the history that you were telling in terms of uh, history of uh, history of sexuality was the alliances that you trace between feminist history yeah. and a broader sexual history, often yeah. done by the same people, yeah. actually. Um, and that's interesting to me very much in terms of the ways you were tracking uh, the mainstreaming of, of, well, I suppose, um, sexual uh, sexual history within institutions, but also the mainstreaming, if you like, of um, 
inquiry into sexuality. And certainly my experience uh, of working here is that uh, increasingly work on sexuality is, is in a certain sense thought of um, more favourably than feminist work mm. uh, in part because I think um, uh, I, th- I think partly because of the successes that you're describing uh, and I think in part because of the ways in which um, uh, I think in part because of the ways in which a feminist uh, position uh, I- I includes within it uh, the presumption of the critique that is not always uh, present, though it may be in the person, in terms of um, sexual history or um, sexual meaning. So, I th- and, and I think partly also too um, the ways in which in some of the contemporary writing you're describing, feminist writing is sort of written out of of that trajectory so that queer work is considered in a certain sense more transgressive while feminist work is associated with in a certain sense being a little bit less um, fun (laughs) which it is much less fun so uh... (laughs) it's it's really you've made the point that I was struggling through to that there's been a particular appropriation of sexual history right. um, in, in the universities, as there indeed has been a particular appropriation of gender history. Yes. Um, but the point I was going to underline is, in doing that, the radical edge of both, I think, has been Can lost. Um, and that's not to say one always has to be uh, radical. Um, there's a perfectly respectable, although I think wrong, uh, socially conservative sexual history, um, um, which has been quite yeah. powerful um, and underlines a whole set of arguments. Um, but in mainstreaming... You're not coming out as conservative, are you? No, no, okay. I'm, I'm making the opposite point. In, in, um, in mainstreaming sexual history, a radical edge has been lost. And I, I tell you an example of this to my mind is the way in which in the 70s and 80s in the first wave of uh, sexual history going into universities, there was, much, there was an emphasis from Foucault of uh, history as a history of the present. That is to say, history as uh, um, a survey of the battlefield, in a sense. And it's quite interesting that some of the people who argued that in the 1980s have now dropped it mm. um, completely. Um, and it's no longer considered in that in those terms at all. It's a it's a return to um, a, a more conservative history, even though it now includes sexuality and a form of of gender and indeed a form of race uh, as well in a particular way. And another sign, I think, of this is a willingness on the part of historians, even those who define themselves as radical, to wallow in nostalgia. Um, which again comes back to the world we have lost as opposed to the world we have won. Um, a, a sense that there was something better. Now that something better um, is the 70s and gay liberation for some uh, former activists or people influenced by feminism and uh, gay liberation in the 70s, or the 50s for socially conservative historians, or the 1930s, for instance, in some recent work on uh, working class sexualities, as if there was a golden age. Historians should never wallow in the past nostalgically, should never look for a golden age, um, because golden ages, unfortunately, have the habit of always retreating backwards further and further backwards but it is a temptation um, and it has to do obviously with a dissatisfaction with the present with no normative um, assumptions about how we're going to get from the present to 
a better, um, more acceptable future. Mm. Well, it's the, the idea, it's, it's the ways in which nostalgia is always affectively, um, it appears to be celebratory, but in fact it's highly cynical because, yeah. it, because it sees the past as the site of, of, of the greatest potential. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in ways that are, that are profoundly conservative, as you say. Yeah. Mm. Could I interpret that moment as the moment where we might ask you to um, ask your comments, make uh, ask your questions, make your comments. We would be very happy if you would do this. There are roving mics, and um, we'd be very glad to now uh, if you would now you make your contributions. And perhaps we could take a couple of contributions questions together, and then both Jeff and Claire will reply to them. There's a gentleman here. Um, yeah, I hope. thank you for... Uh, oh, it's on. Which is on. Okay. Can you hear me? No. no speak no. up. Anyway, I'll talk louder. That's easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very interested, both of you. Um, one of the things I think is also interesting about the history of sexuality and the history of sexual history is who gets included and who doesn't get included. And I think one of the things that's interesting is the degree to which the history of sexual history has become a history of uh, homo, lesbian, gay, trans history. And so people like sex workers or sadomasochists for whom the sexual rights agenda has not produced a happy life with equality. In fact, in the case of S&Mers, is actually is now reduced to a point where their actual activities are criminalised and, uh, and sex workers certainly have not had a happy life out of the... Uh, 70s to now. So I think one of the things, one of the dangers, I think, of the of the sex rights agenda has been to see sexuality history as being a very specific group of people, and that other people get shunted out or ignored altogether. And I wondered if you had thoughts on perhaps that, or on other groups that have been ignored in the in the rise of uh, sexual history. Is there anybody else who wanted to make a comment at this point? There is somebody up there. There's a guy there. Hi, yeah, um, uh, it's vaguely related to kind of what Jacqueline said before. Um, Yeah, so um, you talked a little bit about kind of reinterpreting the past depending on, um, you know, ideas that are kind of more common now, so things like people going back and saying that such and such was actually bisexual or or trans, etc., and so on and so forth. Um, do you think there's a, a tendency in sexual history to kind of um, overplay uh, the role of those who are kind of, you know, kind of, you said about history of like kind of the battlefield, kind of the revolutionary uh, kind of groups, so like feminists and and, uh, and the LGBT movement um, over oppressors such as, say, um, religious groups such as, say, uh, Christianity or Catholicism? Because you mentioned the British Empire and, uh, and, and Commonwealth and, and the impact that's had on sexual freedom in certain places. Um, but then, for example, in India, um, they have uh, laws which, well, they, they overturned the colonial laws um, which uh, forbid um, uh, LGBT, uh, sorry, uh, gay uh, sex activities. Um, but then that was recently uh, overturned again to go back to the original uh, colonial version. But is it possible that maybe that's more because of the, uh, say, missionary focus from Catholicism in India and also Africa that's had uh, um, an impact rather than? on the uh, ex-British nature of, of the North then. Okay, thank you. Claire, do you want to reply? Uh, yes, thanks. Thanks both for your uh, questions and follow-up comments. Um, 
Yes, I mean, I, I think that's one of the tensions that I'm pointing to, is that if you... Um, if you have a history of reclamation and if you focus particularly on what is recoverable rather than developing um, a set of ethics and methods that, that allow you to think uh, about what is um, uh, what is uh, the how sexual meaning is constituted through gaps that may not be visible in ways that we might expect, then you will inevitably, I think, uh, have a history that will focus more on identity than it will on, as you say, um, the kinds of histories of sexuality uh, that do not lend themselves to particular kinds of identitarian positions. So, you know, lots of people engage in sex work but don't take that identity as particularly key for them. Lots of people engage in all sorts of sexual practices where that's not the case. Um, it, and, it's, and, of course, in fact, it's, it's not even just that because, in fact, um, people who have uh, quite strong identities in one form or another that do appear to be recognisable. So, you know... Um, I've written quite a lot on bisexuality and I have quite a strong bisexual identity but I wouldn't want to uh, be thought of as, as, as that describing the fullness of my sexual meaning <laughs> you know, so it's not just about um, who and what but also the ways in which any form of <coughs> naming in that moment um, needs to be thought of in terms of what it allows and doesn't now, now that for me is, is not a way of saying oh we just need to always look at deconstructing everything and have no, this is not an argument for a failure of politics. This is an argument for a shift in terms of thinking, and, and, and in this sense I agree very strongly with you, about finding a language through which we can, we can directly address problems of, of homophobia and sexual violence um, globally in ways that do, don't repeat the particular ills that, that have produced those meanings in the first place. Right? And that's a massive task. Mm. I mean, it's an extremely difficult task, but it does mean that, that, that one, is, one is committed in a certain sense to always looking and being at and being accountable for the exclusions of one's own practice as well as the exclusions of other people's. Right? And I, I think in some ways that probably answers your question as well, which is to look at, you know, that sexual history is just as much a history of empire as it is a history of identity and community. It has to be. Otherwise, in a sense, you, you, you miss the, the, what const how sexual meaning is formed. Um, I know that wasn't exactly what you asked, but I just thought I'd add that anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's a sense in which... Um, in a narrow sense of uh, the progressive nature of history, that uh, history is written as particular subject groups come to be aware of their history. And historically, um, in the last 50 years, um, the women's movement and the gay movement pushed a certain form of interest in history, which subsequent uh, social movements and organizations and so on um, um, came along a bit later. Um, so it's not surprising there's no great history of BDSM practices um, because as, a, um, as, as an identity and community, it, it did actually emerge later than a strong gay and lesbian identity um, in the 70s, and the same with trans identities. Um, which isn't to say that trans and bisexual and BDSM experiences weren't there, but they didn't have the same uh, push. So histories emerge in, in different uh, periods, 
given the strength of uh, the, the social activities, social movements, interest um, around, around them. So I'm not surprised in that sense. Um, but uh, I certainly have been writing about the whole range of sexual categories since the uh, 1980s. And in my Sexuality and Discontent, I talked about all the categories you mentioned. I talked about BDSM. I talked about trans. Um, uh, I talked about paedophilia as well as about homosexuality and heterosexuality. Um, so, you know, one struggles to keep these, these uh, discussions going. Um, um, and different interests will come up at different times, as I said, given the salience of, of uh, public history. But the crucial thing that these histories aren't going to follow each other in, in any automatic way and do all the same things and go through the same epistemological crises because precisely um, as Claire uh, hinted at um, one is no longer so certain about the, the truth of particular identities. We know about the contingency of identities and how they shaped and reshaped uh, through time so the historical practice will, will be different. In relationship to um, uh, what you were talking about, religion, for instance, it, it's a very interesting point. Um, but one of the founders of what you could call a gay history, John Boswell, was writing in the 1970s, early 80s, uh, essentially from a Catholic point of view, and writing a history of, uh, of uh, Catholicism and homosexuality. His first book on uh, homosexuality, Christian toleration, whatever it was called, um, Christian toleration and homosexuality, um, was precisely a history from within Catholicism. And it was an argument about why does the Catholic Church ignore uh, its own history of homosexuality in, in the first thousand years of its history. And his last book was about uh, same-sex marriage, again, a critique of Catholic attitudes to our, towards it, ignoring its own blessing of same-sex unions in the first thousand years of its, of its history. So some people have written within a religious perspective uh, right from the start. Um, I think we're, we're much more aware now. I mean, my generation wanted to forget about religion um, because we were escaping from it and its tyrannies. Um, I think there's been uh, a justified recovery of an interest in religion because of its power, uh, continuing power in various parts of the world, although less so in, uh, in Western countries, apart from America. Um, the other point I wanted to mention, though, is this, again, Claire alluded to it, and that's the history of imperialism. There's a very important book uh, that recently came out, edited by um, Matthew Waits, and I've forgotten mm. the co-editor's name, which you could download free from the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. Um, and it's an 800-page book. And it's got essays on uh, various parts of the Commonwealth, including India, um, exploring the history and sociology of particular attitudes to homosexuality. So that sort of history is being written not from Western universities, but actually in, in those countries themselves. Um, and this book is a very important collection of such work and refers to other work that's ongoing. So the work is being done. Um, and if you critique uh, earlier generations for not doing it, fine. But they did lots of other things as well. You can, the point is, you can't do everything at the same time. And, and particular uh, forms of historical work 
actually push against the barriers of what is possible to do and makes it possible to rethink why we're doing it. For instance, on imperialism and sexuality, there have been some books since the 1970s exploring that in particular ways, but not particularly profoundly, but putting those issues on the agenda. As, as we become more aware of global flows in shaping sexuality, as people from... Um, 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 the global south uh, do their own history um, in, in more and more depth um, and as we recognise the power of post-colonial arguments and so on then you know, this history becomes a challenge to western forms of history and that's a very creative and important shift and our forms of history even about British history are changing as we recognise the power of uh, the imperial connection, the importance of race, and so on. Thank you. Can we move? There was a question at the back. So, and are there... Is, sorry? Okay, there's one there. Hi. Uh, I had a question about something you alluded to earlier, Claire. Um, um, about the division between public and private. And um, I had a question about how the gains um, associated with sexual history, um, and the political gains especially, depended on the um, maintaining of that binary, um, even when it includes bringing into the public something which has previously been private. Um, and I was wondering, especially in relationship to how um, Islam is uh, demonized in relation to both women and homosexuality and gender issues. Thank you. Could we take another one? With, um, the person, I think somebody at the back had their hand up before. So. Thank you. So I was hoping that you, this is maybe going back a bit, but if you could speak to this question of sexual history as if it is anything beyond uh, the history of sexuality as a kind of coherent category, um, whether we're calling that an identity or something that's placed by an outsider, um, but that it is something that is the sort of species argument that can we do sexual history that is beyond that is beyond the, you know when the homosexual became a species, something that's beyond the history of sexual delicts and perversions um, and what we can learn thereby uh, about what's normative by what's non-normative. Um, so I guess that's one part of the question. And then uh, the other part is that uh, that they're even within, if, even if the answer to that is no, that is the extent of sexual history, um, then I think that there's a lot of room beyond uh, what's been discussed so far um, even if we're limited to a kind of like late 19th, early 20th century uh, medico-druidical discourse as the important site for the origins of all of this, that there's so much to glean from the same journals that are writing about uh, homosexuality or sodomy or you know, some of these categories that have taken on movements to decriminalize and uh, create communities and new forms of relationalities, that there are also those same doctors and lawyers are writing about sexual murder, sadism, um, and various kinds of masturbation fetishes, and et cetera, that have not become the same kind of political movements and therefore not received attention, but they're not really different sources. They're the same sources. Um, so I guess this, this is a question about both the scope of the field and also 
um, what can be done with some of the same sources instead of just thinking it, what sources might merge, but what can we do with what's already being used? Okay, thank you. Jeff, do you want to, to respond? Um, I'm not sure I quite grasped the, uh, the last question. You, um, are, are you asking... Um, why sexual history focuses on some things rather than than others? Um, In terms of thinking beyond the scope of the field, thinking about uh, the scope of the field and what it might be, um, and because uh, I mean, it was something that came out of the original comments was sort of where where is the field going or where could it go? What is new re- research or directions for research? So I guess my question is is in terms of and also this question of sources. Uh, that if even if we're limited to a kind of medico juridical discourse from late 19th or early 20th century right. producing a kind of classification of different kinds of sexuality, that there are certain classifications that emerge that have not been politicized in the same way. And that is that is that a avenue for further research and in terms of, you know, what happened, like why did those not become politicized or um, or is that something that can be understood as part of a history of sexuality? Um, well, I think I'd have two answers to that. Uh, one is that uh, there is nothing in principle which can't be explored under the rubric of, of sexual history. And in fact, there are histories now of, of sexual murders, of violence, of fetishism, uh, of various forms of perversion, as they were defined. It's not my category, but as they were defined. Um, and various forms of resistance to that. Some of these um, categories did not give rise to identities. So they were, on a large scale, they were not fetishist or masturbators' um, identities in the way they were identities around gayness or lesbianism, and therefore didn't have the same push um, for autonomous histories um, in, in the 1970s. But, but certainly they are being explored. Um, I mean, you know, sexual history has become an industry and uh, people are looking for interesting topics and new PhD topics uh, all, the, all the time. So I have no doubt that uh, um, they will be explored in, in time. But the second point I want to make related to that is it's very important while doing these autonomous histories of different aspects of sexuality. Uh, I should have mentioned celibacy as another example. Work is now being done on history of celibacy. Um, So, you know, this work is being done. But it's also important at the same time not to see sexual history as autonomous. It is involved in the history of medicine, as you mentioned. It is involved in the history of gender um, relations. It is involved in the history of imperialism. It is involved in the history of, uh, of, of the family, of state power, of uh, biopower, and etc., etc. It has to be understood all the time within its particular historical, cultural, um, social, economic configuration. Um, and um, Although I recognize in the way in which history is done, one looks at particular problems within silos, to make it relevant to um, the rest of the history of sexuality, let alone the rest of social and cultural history, it has to be seen in, in terms of these wider social 
shifts. Um, and again, that's another thing perhaps we didn't emphasize in our, in our talk. Um, the best history, I think, tries to see all these changes taking place as taking place within a wider historical context. Not because everything changes at the same time, or you can deduce a history of sexuality from a history of the Industrial Revolution or the Russian Revolution or whatever, although they may have had um, influences. Um, but those are, in many ways, predisposing factors or influential factors. Uh, a, a modern example is the way in which um, you can go to the other extreme. Because we live in a neoliberal age, there's a whole school of uh, sociologists, cultural commentators now, which is striving desperately to prove that the forms of sexuality we have are simply a reflex action to, to um, neoliberalism and the debates on homonormative, homonormatism. Um, uh, um, are an aspect, I fear, of, of this. So what's going to avoid, avoid the extreme of uh, saying um, everything can be deduced from wider social chains, so because capitalism shifts, everything else shifts, which I think is reductivist, um, reductionist, or the other extreme, which simply sees these histories in complete isolation um, from every other history, as if they're all autonomous streams. Again, it's a matter of holding to, together in a complex analysis the different strands which come together at any particular time. Now, I've forgotten the other question that was asked. Um, there was another question. Wasn't there? What was it on? Public-private divide. Oh, public-private divide. I just wanted to say a brief thing about that um, because um, um, there's a very interesting book, of course I've forgotten the title, which talks about secret histories. And, the way, and it traces over the last 200 years or so the way in which um, the, the public and the private conf constantly invaded each other um, into, I think it's called the secret history of sexuality or something like that, um, which actually... Um, explores the way in which people, in a sense, expressed forms of agency through secrecy. Uh, so secrecy is not always a bad thing. I mean, a good example is the way in which um, um, two pretty crucial elements, a woman having illegitimate children um, or um, um, a son or daughter of the household being lesbian or gay, how families coped with these histories over time. Um, and it's too easy to have a, a history of total moral condemnation, as if you know, the pregnant uh, woman was kicked out of the family or the gay or lesbian man or woman was actually excluded from the family. In fact, families had a remarkable way of dealing with these secrecies, uh, either by not asking or finding ways of, of sending the unmarried mother away for nine months on learning a new language in Switzerland or whatever. Um, and inadequate by our modern standards, oppressive in many ways, and yet attempts to conform simultaneously to the norms of the culture and to the love of their children. And it's very important to again hold on to the fact that people um, express their forms of agency in the circumstances they find themselves in. And that often means making use of secrecy, not, not telling at least, in order to cope with the situation they found themselves in. Karen, do you want to come back on? Um, yeah, I, um, I, um, one of the, I, I, 
as a way of trying to answer this, I suppose one of the things I think about uh, mm, the brief reference I made to the public-private divide is not intended to mm, frame that as somehow unchanging over time. Of course, it, it, it shifts. One of the things I think is really interesting, I'll give you an example of the kinds of um, erasures that, that um, I think in some senses both Jeff and I have been talking about th- through our discussion. Um, uh, taking this example of the, the recent um, homo-nationalist work on homo-nationalism and how gay and lesbian identities are uh, taken up and uh, co-opted in particular ways for particular purposes. Um, One of the interesting things that I've um, uh, noted about that work is it it doesn't itself give a a history to the the long um, critique of the emergence of homosexual identities in relationship to capitalism that I I think here of the foundational work of John D'Amelio, for example, um, and think particularly about Rosemary Hennessy's Marxist feminist work on the ways in which the emergence of of, of particular possibilities of of, um, non-heterosexual identities at particular moments in time is very much part of the transformation of wage labour, of changing relationships to empire, of particular kinds of um, histories of changing political economies of of, of the 20th century. And in not um, historicising its own work, it it somehow emerges as if this just spontaneously occurs in in, in a kind of late 20th, early 21st century, uh, post 9-11, you know, almost spontaneous hatred of Islam, you know, (laughs) um, as if in fact, there hadn't been a long history which has been documented um, uh, by um, historians of sexuality of of the relationship between uh, changing patterns in in the labour market, the public-private divide and the emergence of the possibility of particular kinds of identity. So so actually this this idea that identities have have an embedded history is is certainly not not new and it's that kind of embeddedness uh, rather than um, uh, rather than seeing that as a kind of sign of, of, of the apocalypse that, that is, I think both of us are quite interested in, which is in a, certain, in, in a certain sense to say, well, it's not a surprise that identities can be co-opted. What's, what's a surprise is, is, is the particular ways in which that emerges as if it were new, <laughs> if you like. At least that's certainly my position. And, and in relationship to the, to the other question... Um, I'm not sure I know quite how to respond because um, I sort of feel a bit like I think my I think maybe the lesson I'm taking from this is that perhaps my attempt to represent my interests in different methodologies and different ethics of sexual history is a set of tensions that that require precisely the thing you're asking, can we do this? Can we look at new sources, but can we also reevaluate old sources and so on? I, I, I sort of feel like uh, that, that that's not uh, that hasn't worked to me trying to say that <laughs> because I, I hear people coming back and saying, "But isn't there a more complex sexual history you could be telling?" So I feel like I failed in my presentation of that as precisely what I was hoping to convey to you through this this structuring of my interest in these multiple tensions that, that, that mean that you're always doing more than one thing when you're reading particular sources and of course you can you can read dominant sources for the multiple work that they do I mean uh, and that's part of of what it means to be attentive to how texts and images and, and, and an archive works um, So, yes.
I think um, that on that up, upbeat note, <laughs> um, a yes, a collective yes, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop this evening because we do have to be out of here very shortly. Before we stop, I wanted to issue two invitations. First of all, to you to return to the next conversation here at 6 o'clock on March the 4th. Uh, when Ruth Lester and Diane Elson will be talking about money and inequality. And do please come, um, if you're able to, on that evening. Secondly, we'd very much like you to join us um, for a reception, um, which is going to be held in the old building just across the road. Go to the foyer of the old building and follow the corridor round to the right. So you're very warmly invited to um, come and continue this conversation with us now. Um, the final thing that I wanted to say is to thank both Claire and Jeff um, for their contributions over the past, the past years of their work and also for their very fascinating, remarkable interchanges with each other this evening. So I'd like you to thank Claire Hemmings and Jeff Weeks, the author of The World We Have Won. <laughs>